Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Dear Sugar is supported by. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar's here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Allman, and this is Dear Sugar Radio. That's right. Of our live Dear Sugar Radio from Portland. So we get, uh, you know, hundreds of letters, dozens every week. And one of the threads that runs through so many of them is addiction, the trials of addiction. Sometimes it's uh, sort of in the background. Sometimes it's really at the center of the the letter. And we decided that we really, we really wanted to talk to Sarah Happala because we absolutely adore her book. Yes. Blackout. Uh, but we also wanted to take it on, head on. And I want to ask you, Cheryl, as somebody who, as we have talked about, has led a very colorful life, a lot of people really come to you or, you know, really put you in the category of somebody who was an addict. Yeah, which, which isn't true, um, right. actually. Which always, when I say that, sounds like it's, you know, the first thing you do if you are an addict is deny <laughs> you are an addict. But you know, it's interesting, one of the things that happened in my writing is I, I wrote an essay called Heroin about my experience. I came to Portland in 1994 at a time when I was just at the bottom point in my life and suffering a lot. And I met a young man actually at this place, Dots Cafe in Southeast, old, old timers will know. Um, I met him and he you know, was this bright, brilliant young man who had just graduated from a local esteemed institution that I cannot name. Um, and he asked me if I wanted to try heroin with him. And a lot of people were doing that in the 90s who were in their 20s. It was like a cool thing to do and it was interesting and it was also the first time I used heroin as I've written, you know, it's the first thing that I felt like it worked, meaning it was the cure for pain. 
And I really thought, okay, I can live with my life if I have this thing. And what happened was a really dangerous, destructive era in my life. But what didn't happen, and what I've always said in my writing, but I don't think it's been perceived very widely, is I didn't become addicted to heroin in the end. I, I did it for a brief enough time in, in an erratic enough fashion. And really, people, the people who loved me, namely my ex-husband, who was still my husband at the time, really wrenched me away from that thing in Portland itself. But you know, with heroin, it did wake me up to the potential of how a life can be destroyed by drugs and alcohol. And it's certainly, you know, so much of my life has been impacted by addiction, obviously in ways that many of our letter writers have reported. So many of those divorces and dysfunctional childhoods and sad endings of relationships are connected to addiction. So as Steve said, you know, today we're going to look at it head on with the help of Sarah Hepala, who is somebody who's had to confront this in a really different way in her life than, than either Steve or I yeah, have. Absolutely. I, I, I am always struck by one of my favorite books that actually reading Sarah's book made me go back and reread is uh, quite a remarkable memoir called Drinking a Love Story. This book, to me, was utterly transfixing because it was really writing about what great addiction narratives do, which is the ways in which we try to beat a path from despair, the ways in which we try to find the cure for pain. And here's what Carolyn Knapp wrote that I thought was so striking. She said, I loved the way drink made me feel, and I loved its special power of deflection its ability to shift my focus away from my own awareness of self and onto something else. That is one of my favorite memoirs of all time. She died in her 40s of cancer. But Sarah's as well. You know, Sarah, her book, we're going to bring her on stage in a minute. Her book is called Blackout. What's the full title of that book? That The subtitle is? It's called Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. She writes this, I tumble into a cab with my friend and the night starts to stutter and skip. The streets are a smear through the window, the taxi meter a red blur. And later she talks about walking into this hotel and she talks about the bright squint of the lobby. There are those kind of sparks of language. So, and this is true of, you know, under the volcano, all this incredible literature that is in part about how incredibly enthralling and exciting it is to be under the influence. I mean, people, obviously, it's deeply destructive when you're inside of it and you look back on it and say, oh my God, that ruinous time. But Sarah's book honors another truth that lives alongside that truth, which is, God damn, is it exciting. And devastating, ultimately. So let's right. bring Sarah on stage uh, to talk with us. Let's do it. <laughs> Sarah. Hi, guys. Thank you for being on Dear Sugar Radio. We're so thrilled to have you. You came all the way from, well, you live in Dallas, Texas. You were in L.A. this I morning. I was in, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. So no, I'm so happy to be here, and thank you for the wonderful introduction. It's sure. beautiful. Thank you. By the way, I read Carolyn Knapp's book when I was 23 years old, mm -hmm. and it cut me. I mean, I had never read somebody read my story like that. And I sat, I was in Boston. I was outside of Cheers Bar. <laughs> Good little drunk that I am at the time. And, uh, and I was reading it and I was just crying, you know, because I knew that was my story, but I hadn't gotten there yet. You know, that sometimes is true for people that, you know, are in bad marriages and they're not ready to get divorced yet, or you're, you know, you need to leave your job, but you don't want to quit your job yet. You're not ready for that change. And it's like, I felt that 
flash of recognition that somebody, like she knew what was underneath my skin, but I couldn't make the change yet. But two years later, I did quit drinking, and I quit for a year and a half. My drinking, which had been very heavy, but also kind of age-appropriate, you know, there's this normalization of really heavy binge drinking. And that had been my life. And then I quit for a year and a half, and I was like, look, I'm done. And then I started again because I wanted the excitement. I wanted the good part of drinking without the bad part. Everybody wants the heaven without the hell, right? right. And so I started drinking again, and then the next 10 years are basically me learning that the answer is no, I don't drink like other people, mm -hmm. which was very difficult. But I think, you know, in a lot of people's narratives, you, you want there to be like the rock bottom moment. I had to learn that I couldn't drink like other people about a hundred times. What happened the last time? Well, the last time, I mean, I was 35 years old. I had been trying to quit for about two years at that point. This is, you know, I quit at 25, I started at 27. Then I drink for many more years. And then for the last two years, I was trying to quit. What would happen is, you know, I'm sure many of you have tried to quit other things and found this, you know, dynamic to be true. You quit on a Sunday. And then by Tuesday, you're like, what, what was that with the quitting thing? Like, do I, I mean, do I have to quit? Or can I like moderate or like, so I was always quitting and walking it back, quitting, walking it back. It is exhausting to lie to yourself. Right. It is exhausting to make a promise that you cannot keep. And at first, it's like, it's funny. And then after a while, it gets really into this crazy desperate thing where it's like, why is it that when I say on Sunday, I'm not going to drink, I can't hold that promise. I mean, that is a really strange place to be in. You can't trust anybody else in the world, really. You should be able to trust yourself. And when you can't trust the words that are coming out of your mouth... That's a tough place. So I would do things like, I'm going to do yoga for 90 days, and, you know, then that wouldn't work. Or I'm going to drink more vitamin water, and, you know, I'm going to read, <laughs> you know, David Foster Wallace books, and that'll, everything. Like, you get all these ideas, because you don't want the answer to be, I have to quit drinking. That was the last right. door I wanted to open, and I opened all the other doors. And, I mean, what happened the last night was, I mean, I just woke up, and I'd, I'd been at a wedding, and I had blacked, I had this problem blacking out, and blacking out is when you have a temporary amnesia. You know, you're still walking and talking in the world, but you don't remember. And it's really, really spooky. People make jokes about it. I made jokes about it. I still hear drunks call it time travel. They, you know, it's scary. It's scary not to remember what you did the night before. It's like detective work on your own life. It's so creepy. So I woke up in my bed, my cat's next to me, but I didn't know how I got home. And it was such a sad, defeated feeling to not know my own life. Yeah, and I love the part of your book where you talk about the actual physiological mechanisms where you can be moving through the world and being the life of the party, but you've had enough alcohol to really shut down any long-term memory. So then you have no hope of figuring out your story because you were there, but you have no recollection of it. Yeah, and of course, you know, addiction, there's always a component of denial, right? But in blackouts, there is actual, like, it's a real, it's like denial taken to the extreme because you literally don't remember it. I mean, I can remember when I was, you know, dating somebody and then he'd be mad at me the next morning and I'd be like, what are you mad about? Like, nothing happened, I didn't do anything. You know, and I, I remember him telling me once, if you saw yourself, you wouldn't drink like this. Right. And I thought, but I don't see myself, so right. it's cool. That's the whole thing. <laughs> and it, it really traces back to what Carolyn Knapp is saying. If you annihilate the self... There's no possibility of self-awareness. Mm -hmm. Yes, right. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you know, you drink to get out of yourself, and then you drink yourself away. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to hear more about your story, but I think 
that we should at this juncture maybe read the letter, read the letter yeah. that you'll consider with us, and then you can share more yeah. uh, by way of answering this letter. Yes. All right, so I'm going to read this letter. Dear Sugars, I first tried to quit drinking in 2012 the way I had been drinking, secretly in volume to escape genuine pain and tragedy transpiring in my life at that time was deeply messed up. But I also thought it was situational. Like many alcoholics, I believe two things. One, that I was not a real alcoholic like those people. And two, that once I got myself sorted, I would be able to drink like a normal person again. I'm a writer, and the myth is that we're tortured people who find inspiration or solace in bottles. I'm also a woman and a rebel, a gleeful contrarian. Alcohol was a big way I performed that rebellion and subverted expectations of how women are supposed to act. I also deal with clinical depression and was unconsciously, then consciously, self-medicating my distress until the physical addiction became the pilot. Those who think alcoholism is a purely moral weakness have never experienced being a blackout drunk on a binge who wakes up feeling like one of those zombie ants taken over by a fungus. I proved my biological response to booze over and over. I will want more and more and more. For me, there is no choice. For years, I was only able to cobble together short periods of sobriety. After a relapse of epic proportions, I finally entered more formal treatment for addiction, and I now know, one, oh, I'm a fucking real alcoholic. I understand the physicality of the disease, understand how my body and brain react differently to the substance than others, and two, I will not drink ever again. This is not a happy conclusion, but also not an unhappy one. I have a therapist, a psychiatrist, a regular AA group, a spiritual practice, and a commitment to open communication with my husband, who has proven himself capable of awe-inspiring, unconditional love. I am a lucky former drunk who came out at the other side without that baggage and still holding on to the man I love most in the universe. My problem, then, is this. While I have this amazing team behind me, my family knows none of this and I'm having a lot of trouble processing if and how to have that conversation with them now that so much time has passed. I see my mother and stepdad and my sister and her kids about once a month, I love them. There's no trauma in our relationships, but we're not very intimate in an emotional sense. My mom and sister aren't self-reflective people on the whole, but they're big hearted. I think they would feel upset that I didn't reach out to them for help when I needed it, and I fear the admission of my addiction would spur a flurry of well-meaning but unwelcome family gossip flooding phone lines and Facebook. On the one hand, I want to break down the stigma of mental illness and addiction by speaking up. On the other, my recovery feels so happy and promising and right as it is, and I don't want to open myself up either to extra emotional work or that stigma backlash, especially as I'm not yet a year sober. And the fact is, I don't have to say anything. I've had no alcohol in front of my mom, stepfather, and sister for years. No one seems to notice I don't drink. But my father is a different situation. Again, I love him and he loves me. The two of us are more emotionally open people and have bonded over drinks, always over drinks. The first time I was not going to drink with him, this was several years ago, I knew it was going to be noted and I panicked about what I would do and what that would mean for weeks beforehand. Based on the advice of my therapist, I told him a truth, even if it wasn't the whole truth, that my depression meds and booze didn't mix well, and so I couldn't have a drink with him. 
I didn't and still don't want to have a conversation about my alcoholism with him because he has some of the same attitudes toward and actions around alcohol I once did, though as far as I know, he's never been powerless over his drinking. I do think he'd want to talk about it and make it into this big life moment, and I don't need that drama. What kind of honesty do I owe my family on this subject? If I don't shout my alcoholism from the rooftops, am I hurting acceptance of the disease? I know my family would react to the news with distress and frantic love, and perhaps they'd feel hurt that I didn't confide in them earlier. Will it only get harder if I wait to share this information with them? How do I tell them that I want nothing to change except their new knowledge that I no longer drink, love, silently, sober? Now, we're both going to look at you like... <laughs> so tell us, So Sarah. tell us, Sarah, beautiful, eloquent, recovering I, alcoholic. I have so many thoughts on that. Well, first of all, I mean, I think to the question of whether or not she needs to tell her family these things, I think the answer is no. I mean, I think she answers this question herself. You know, I'm happy in my recovery. You know, but then she says, do I need to have a responsibility to fight the stigma of the disease? No. No. Right. You do not need to take that responsibility on. You are not even a year sober yet. I mean, her responsibility is to build a life that she doesn't want to drink her way out of. Mm. You know, that's what she's doing. And I think people that are addicts tend to be really instant gratification monsters. We want everything now. We want change fast. We want everything big. Right. I mean, not only is she going to, you know, get sober, but she needs to fight the stigma of the disease, right. you know? And it's like, that's not on you. Right. You know, I just also want to say about this letter that like there was so much in the first half that I totally related to and all that stuff about, you know, being a writer and the rebellion of the writer and the yeah. idea that alcohol is this rebellion. You know, I thought one of the things that really struck me about the letter, also because it was really true in my own life, is the extent to which I wanted alcohol to make me an outlaw and a rebel and exceptional. And it's right. so interesting to me that sobriety actually is a rebellion. You know, alcohol is actually a really, it's not rebellious. It's actually, it's what it's everyone does. It's conformist. It, yeah. it is. But a rebel is somebody that steps outside. And that's the life that she's learning to lead. And I think um, as far as, you know, how you, you interact with the people in your life after you're sober... Personally, I found that, you know, I wanted a lot of my relationships to change instantly and for all of them to get fixed, and it took years. And I can imagine that in time, maybe she wants to make her relationship with her mother and, you know, a little deeper than that. But right now, it's not broken. Don't fix it. It sounds like everything's going great. Right. And I think, too, it's interesting. I was really struck when we get to that point in the letter where she says, actually, I haven't had a drink in front of my mother and stepfather right. and sister for years, and they didn't even notice. You know, so this is about, she's bringing this kind of tension to this question. And, and I think what it's ultimately about is, you know, obviously, it is uncomfortable to be close to people who don't know who you really are. Yes. And so I do think that someday, that Silently Sober is going to want to open up, up about that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what this is about, is this feeling of, like, is she being fraudulent in these relationships if she doesn't tell the truth? And I, and I think no. I think that there will be a time for it. It doesn't have to grow into a lie. It has to, rather, 
you know, she's been sober a year, grow into something that she inhabits. She's a, as a sober person that she finally shares the full truth of that sobriety. You know, and maybe that's the way to think about it, sharing the truth of her sobriety rather than the truth of her hmm. disease, her alcoholism. Right. Right. What do you make of that, Sarah? Well, I think that's true. And I also think that people that are in sobriety have to be careful not to build more lies. You know, at the end of my drinking, I was lying a lot. You know, I was going to all the different bodegas, so none of the bodegas knew how much I was drinking. And I was, you know, picking up a six-pack on the way home from having a drink with friends. And, you know, like I was sort of, there was a whole evasion going on. So, so you were lying. I mean, the bodega guys probably didn't care or notice. No, were you, but you're... Were you lying to yourself or you, you created lying a to sense myself, of them I'm, tracking I'm, you? I don't want them to catch on to how much I'm drinking. This is how... Wor I was worried about the bodega guys, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, that's how much you're trying to kind of keep yourself that stuff at bay. Uh -huh. right. um, but because my life felt like a lot of spinning plates and I had to let them clatter to the ground and, you know... So when you're sober, you don't want to start spinning plates again. You right. don't want to, like when I was going to AA meetings in the middle of work, it would make me uncomfortable to be like, oh guys, I'm just going to lunch. I didn't like lying, but I needed to do that for a little bit, just a little bit of time until I could get my legs underneath me and I could be a little bit more comfortable in my own skin. I just, I think a lot of my stuff too was, I'm so worried about everybody else. I was always worried about everybody else mm -hmm. and you know, just leave for an hour. You don't need to tell everybody where you're going. When you sit down and you don't order a, a drink, you don't need to explain to everybody or give them elaborate lies to why you're not drinking. I know it feels that way sometimes, right. but I think it's totally appropriate to say, yeah, I'm not drinking tonight. There's a difference between <laughs> or, privacy oh. and a lie. Yeah. yeah. People who haven't figured out boundaries around privacy maybe might need to learn something about this. I in, think that, that most regard. people that drink a lot have very bad boundaries. I mean, yeah. you know, and I think that we also, I know for myself, it was because it was such a part of my people pleasing. And it was such a part of my, let me be the thing that you need. Let me make you happy at the expense of myself. Yeah. And so a lot of my sobriety was about taking that back and just kind of taking care of myself first. And the point, you know, you were talking earlier about not wanting to have fraudulent relationships. You know, yeah, I think you just start building more honest relationships in mm -hmm. sobriety. And over time, you start to let yourself be seen. And maybe it involves talking about the past. Maybe that's not necessary. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. The relationship with the dad is where things for me get very complicated and sort of, for our letter writer, very charged. She writes about being in a panic, right? She's panicked because it's clear as she takes us through it that she sees in her father a lot of the same attitudes and actions around alcohol. Now, whether that traces to some kind of uh, genetic disposition or behavioral disposition, that gets very hot for her. And so the real question there has to do with when does self-protection, which feels to me appropriate when you're first year sober, when does that start to curdle into a kind of avoidance? of a conversation that in order to have a truly honest relationship with their father, maybe they do need to have a painful, difficult conversation. She doesn't say it outright, but it's clear that that word panic to me signals there's something in my dad that I recognize deeply and have turned away from. And if I somehow make that too clear to him, it's gonna be a betrayal or forsaking the decisions he's made. Yeah, and I definitely relate to the relationship with the father, not that I drank with my father, but I had a lot of drinking friends. And when I quit drinking, I think it was, in a way, a threat, 
because not only am I threatening what we do to bond together, right? and that is a very sacred ritual of bonding for many of us. I mean, yeah. it's how we get close, and it's what we do. Yep. And so when you stop doing it, you're not playing by the rules anymore. And I hated it when my friends stopped drinking. Yep. Through my 30s, when my, my friend was like, I'm pregnant, I was like, yay. And it's so unfair, but it's like you don't want to drink alone. And, yep. and suddenly it feels like this thing that was going to be this fun rocket ride turned into a table for one. And I don't like that. And, yeah. you know, so I know that when I decided to quit, then that sometimes turns the spotlight on the drinking friend who's then like, right. wait a minute. Yeah. Do I have a problem? Or <laughs> this can act out many different ways. One of the ways can be that the other person might convince you you don't have a problem. And that's very threatening. Right. If you've decided that you have a problem and you've taken that long walk and then somebody's going to try to tell you that really it's no big deal. Right. And they don't do that to be undermining, I don't think. I think they do that to try to be helpful. Well, and also, I mean... This or is, to deflect. <laughs> right. I mean, this is going to sound a little silly, but I, as you were talking, I was thinking about when I told my friend Sean that I was n not going to watch football anymore. Right. And he just looked at me and said, and he meant it, really, for real. He said, please don't take this away from me. Right. You know, don't yeah. make me think about the moral that's complication right. don't make of, me reflect. This of is that addiction. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. don't take away the time that we had together doing that. Being, you know, everybody knows when they're, I think we know as a species when we're behaving badly. You just want company in those situations. Absolutely. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true, you know. And I was always, when I was drinking, I was always the person that was trying to get you to stay later at the party and come on, like, you don't need to go to work tomorrow. Take another shot. Don't like, leave me alone. Alcohol is complicity. Right. But so, you know? Sarah, you know, as somebody, I think that the, this point that we've all said is like, she's been sober barely a year, okay? There's a long road ahead. And in closing, maybe you can offer her some insight. You know, this thing with her father is an open-ended question. We can't exactly tell her what to do about the fact that she has bonded in really positive ways over alcohol with her father. It's a, it's a thing that has been, like you said, a sacred ritual between them. And I want to suggest that one of the things that silently sober can think about is more is to be revealed over time. Absolutely. And what I wanted to ask you about, Sarah, is what does it look like years out? How many years have you been sober? Six. And what, oh. six years? Yeah. And what has happened? Yay! And what has happened with some of those relationships that did begin over drinks and sustained over time, and obviously they're not over drinks anymore. Can you talk to Silently Sober directly yeah. about how this might look years out with her father. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, I think when, it, I, when I quit drinking, I was the loneliest girl in the world. I mean, I really didn't think anybody would want to hang out with me, and I didn't think that I had a future. It was so painful. And I think I was so addicted to that fast change and that instant. And I also thought I'd done a hard thing, so I deserved good life now. <laughs> you know, like, I think a lot of us make hard changes, and it's like, right. now, where are the cash and prizes? And I didn't, and, and that didn't happen for me. And I had, part of sobriety was for me to, to pivot from fast fixes that didn't work to slow change that did and slow growth that was sustaining. And I was in so much pain that my relationships were broken forever when I quit drinking. I had two in particular that were just really, you know, it was so hard, but it's like you build a bridge brick by brick. 
You know, you can't go over it in a day. And you build those bridges back to each other. And what is so wonderful about alcohol, quitting alcohol, it's, it's hard in so, in so many ways, but when you take the alcohol away, you start to be able to fix what was underneath it. So all the things that I was drinking for, which was to be confident and funny and feel sexy, I could become those things. I could become them instead of faking them. And I could find it in myself instead of reaching for it outside of myself. You know, that is the big, you know, reveal. That's of, the cash and prizes. Yeah, and that's, you, and Sarah, that's the cash and prizes. you are all of those things. Thank you. Sarah Hapala. Thanks. Sarah Hapala. Thank you so much. Okay, so just to reveal exactly now, not only how old we both are, but also how this co-hosting deal is kind of like a, a sort of a, a fake sort of marriage, or a sort of kind of marriage, yes. is that I have forgotten my reading glasses, and I need to borrow yours, which are hanging on your shirt. Oh. <laughs> that, that is... <laughs> Surely somebody in the audience has a pair of reading glasses. Oh, here we go. Oh, thank you. Oh, they're cute, too. All right. Okay. Hello. And actually... Hello. Uh, I'm, I'll be your sexy librarian wow. for the day. Okay, we just need oh, a wallet now. That's all right. Okay. Dear Sugars, my husband died by suicide a few years ago mm. after I discovered seven years of infidelity. I am soon publishing a book about the aftermath of his suicide. My question is about my children. I worry about them reading this book and discovering the hard truth about their dad. They know he killed himself, and I explain to them about suicide and depression, but they don't know about his cheating and abuse that happened before he died. This book reveals all of it. Do I protect the image of their father? Signed, Confused Mom. Mm. We cannot answer that question for you. Or at least I can't answer that question for you. Cheryl and I both get this, some variation of this question, although in not such a painful context. That just sounds shattering. What I would say is that when you make art, and in particular literary art, and in particular nonfiction that's autobiographical, you are being in a cosmic sense fresh. You are breaking the omerta of whatever set of secrets your usually family, but even your you know peer group has sort of protected. That's real. I am not of the school that says, it's your truth, so just speak it. Yes, everybody has a truth, but they also have a family. And they also have people who they love, who they feel you know, in, in some way that makes us human responsible for and wanting to take care of. I, thought about and written a fair amount about this struggle, and it's a real one. If I had the fairy dust that allowed people to just tell the truth without feeling bad about it, that would be an amazing fairy dust, but it would wreak havoc on the world. Because in addition to our impulse to speak our truth and make beautiful art and have the whole story set out, we have a very real obligation to the people who we love who are close to us, and especially if they're children. Yeah. So the first advice I'd give you is to read 
um, one of the, the most beautiful, incredible memoirs that I've read in ages, and that is All the Things We Never Knew, written by Shirley Hamilton, who lives in Portland and is in the room. And, <laughs> and I, I consider Sheila simply a future guest of Dear Sugar Radio. Um, I'm just waiting for that right moment to have her on because the story she tells in her memoir about her husband, who, who also died by suicide and struggled with mental illness and addiction, and there was infidelity and all kinds of things, and there was also Sheila's beautiful daughter in the story. And, you know, I think that one of the things I've done as a writer is look at how do other writers do this really hard thing? How do they do it? The other thing I would say is to first remember that that thing you're writing, you don't say how close you are to being done with this book, but that thing you're writing right now is just yours. It just lives in the privacy of your computer. And I would say, write the whole story. Write, write everything you can possibly right. write. You know, that there isn't a portal that connects you know, your computer to the pages of The New Yorker. And unfortunately. Um, <laughs> George Saunders has that computer, sadly. But, um, no, thankfully for all of us. He's one of my favorite writers. But, you know, it, it, I think sometimes we get all bound up about, like, well, what's going to happen if I write this or that or the other thing or what are the consequences? And, and I'm with Steve about, you know, it's really important that you ask what the consequences are, especially if you're writing about your children, especially if you're writing about a parent, you know, that the image of the parent who is now deceased is going to be altered in some way by the story you have to tell. That's serious business. But, you know, when you're first writing, find what that story is. And sometimes what you find in the course of that is you actually can do that thing, you know, pretty beautifully that, that Lydia and I were talking about on last week's episode, you know, the allowing somebody else their point of view, writing with compassion and complexity about something that may in the moment have seemed very black and white, yeah. you know, a cheating husband or, a, you know, those things that we feel, you know, very black and white about often when we sink in and do the real work that writers do a lot of compassion rises out of that. Sheila Hamilton, again, great model of this sort of thing. Last piece of advice I would say is the thing about kids is they grow up really quickly. And by the time you get towards the end of that journey of writing that book, I imagine your kids will be of an age that you can actually talk to them yeah. about how they feel about this. You can share with them. Listen, I loved your father. Your father and I had all these good things, and we also had these struggles because people have these struggles. And it's amazing what kids can do, I think, when you enlist them in those deep questions that you have about how to tell a story that's going to go into the world. Mm-hmm. Good luck. Yeah, good luck. Okay, here we go. Dear Sugars, I have so many questions to ask you that it's almost hard to start writing. And that's the whole question. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm a 20-something who is about to graduate college, and I have no idea where to go from here. The last four years have been tumultuous, lonely, and confusing. I've been in bad relationships and unfulfilling friendships. I've done very mediocrely at school. I feel like everywhere I look, my friends and peers are succeeding or are on promising paths, and I'm just frozen in fear and inadequacy. It's not that I don't have passions. I just feel too overwhelmed and afraid to follow any single one. I guess to sum up all of this, what advice would you give to a scared, lonely, and confused person who is reluctant to start her life, and this is signed a perpetual misfit. Okay, and the first that she's held, she's yeah, a twenty-something. Okay, so first of all, we're just going to survey the audience. Okay, 
So first of all, how many of you are over the age of 26? How many of you, when you were in your early 20s about to graduate from college, felt a little bit like this person did on the index card? Okay, okay. So the, I, I think that what the, my very scientific survey has revealed... Yes. ...that you are doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing at this moment in your life, and that is asking all these questions and being unsure. And the deal is that the way you find out what you need to do is by doing a bunch of stuff that you weren't supposed to do, mm -hmm. right? And, and, then, and then, you know, like, the truth reveals itself over time, not at the moment that you want it to. You know, so you do need to put yourself in the world. And one of the pieces of advice I would give you, you know, when, when you're lost at sea and you're kind of like, well, what, what is my purpose? You know, give to other people. Don't ask, what is my purpose? Ask, what do I have to give? What do I have to give? Mm. And it's amazing how effective that is. When you, when you really think, what do I have to give? What, what happens then is you find yourself engaged with things you ultimately often feel very, you know, passionate about and driven to do. Yeah. I think that's all right. And I think also that the great myth, you know, there, there are all sorts of people on television, especially in this sort of the season we're in, who are paid to feel and express a kind of moral surety. They're sure they have the solution. They're sure of everything. That's what they're selling. And that's not actually where people live. People are united by their uncertainty, their doubt, their insecurity, their feelings that life in particular moments and even for particular eras feels like too much for them to bear and manage and make a success out of. So it's a universal condition. You heard that from yay for that universal condition of doubt. Okay. The other part of this though that's important is look, you get one life in my reading of things. You get one life. And if you know that you weren't trying your hardest at school, and you know that you weren't getting into relationships that were good for you and sustaining, you know what the symptoms are, you're in charge of your life. You have a responsibility to examine the decisions you've made and try to figure out, why do I not feel that I deserve a richer life, a more meaningful life? Why is that? And you know what? Get some help. Get some help in asking those questions. I, I, you know, from certainly from friends, to whatever extent our blathering helps, but sometimes it takes more than that. For me, it took a lot more than that. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why I can't feel good about who I am, what I have, what I'm trying to do, and I need paid help with that. And there's no fucking shame in that. One way of thinking about it is like this. It's definitely true that therapy is a luxury, but it's also a luxury that everybody deserves. Right. So. Okay, next question. Next question, put them on. Put I, on I, the I glasses. meant the glasses, yes, Deb's for those glasses. of you who are not here in Revolution Hall. Deb is gonna go down and podcast infamy now for the reading glasses. Especially after you steal her glasses. I know. I was rocked by your podcast, The Weight of Love. And so it's an episode that we ran last, I guess, winter. So often and, and in many ways, weight is tied to our underlying psychological processes 
of self-esteem, et cetera. I'm curious as to what daily strategies you recommend to help continue to disengage our concept of worth from that of weight. Mm. Signed, curiosity killed the fat. So this is going to, I hope this doesn't sound at all trivializing, but I want to share with you that a couple of days ago, I caught sight of myself in a mirror and realized that even though I probably appear to be basically ectomorphic, <laughs> I was carrying, I had a couple of friends here in the saddlebag area, um, and I was self-conscious about it and thought, you know, well, just, I actually thought I'm just not going to eat a lot. You know, and I, I'm not trying to suggest, like, I have a millionth of the kind of essentially patriarchal, pornographied garbage coming at me that any woman in this culture faces pretty much relentlessly. But I want to say that we participate in a lot of that. We are so wrapped up in it that it's almost impossible to get outside of it. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. All of that's true. And I think, you know, this question, I'll, Steve, you know, I agree with everything you say. I won't reiterate. But to think about the part of the question of what is the daily thing that you can do to fight against this. So right. I'll answer that piece of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's really connected to that thing we were talking about earlier about that inner voice on last week's episode, that mantra, that inner voice of real truth. Because we all have, I mean, I have it in front of you right this minute. You know, it's like, do I look fat? This has been a question I have asked myself probably about 7,000 times in the time we've been sitting here. Um, I don't want to know the answer. And, the, and that is the other voice, the truer voice within me that says, you know what? What am I giving you here? What am I doing here? What am I engaged in here with the people who have shared the stage with me? What's the energy and the beauty I'm feeling in this room right now? And so I'm in, in a constant battle to actually let that truth win. And I don't always rise victorious from that, you know? I sometimes feel miserable and bad and afraid and sad. Yeah, and, and I would just say one additional thing. Just take the long view of this. Oh, for God's sakes, people, we just have to judge ourselves on the basis of how kind we are, how truly we love the people around. I mean, what a stupid fucking set of criteria to impose on ourselves. How do we look in relation to some completely perverted ideal that's been set out by a bunch of fucking marketing people to jam fucking shit we don't need down our throat? Is, is this the point? Is this... Yeah. Well... But, but, I mean... You're such I, a Marxist. I, I always... I always know that Steve's that really, like, hit his groove when he uses the, the phrase late-stage capitalism. So, can, can you just late, work late that Late model in? capitalism. Late, late model. See, late model capitalism. Like, let's work that in there. It's, if, if you're not careful, I'm going to talk about Marx's theory of alienation from the land. <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm saying is a, it's a kind of radical humanism. Please stop using as the criteria for your worth and stop as a daily practice consuming the fucking shitty products coming your way that partake in the idea that something matters more than your spiritual life, your ability to love well and truly. Come on, that's what it's about. That's right. Okay. Okay. Like sell all your positions and 
join the community. One more one question. More question. We're going to right. have one more question. All right. Then in we you, have some Here it is. Dear special. Sugars, in your reading of Marx's theory of alienation from the land... <laughs> You see? Yeah, I control. All right. Now, this interestingly is addressed to you, okay? It says Cheryl, which oh. is totally legit. It's a, I, it's, I want to hear what you have to say. Cheryl, we moms came to hear you tonight. Can we ask you how we can teach our children to be colorblind, to step out with love, and to suspend our disbelief that peace will prevail over violence. Thank you. Wow, that's such a big question. You're going to have to answer it too, even though it wasn't addressed to you. And I've really, one of the things that strikes me as I listen to that question, which is a great question, is that phrase colorblind. And I think a lot of people who are, you know, grew up in my generation, that was the great liberal idea. And I think it's an idea that failed and that we need to rethink because it's, its intentions were good and pure, right? But it was based on a false premise that we can all pretend that we're all equal and nobody faces discrimination because all, we all love each other. And we know that that's not the fact of the matter. The, the ideal is that, that we're colorblind, the fact is that we aren't. You know, I, I'm not, I don't have the answer to this question, but there is one thing I can share that felt like a revelation to me as a parent. You know, my kids, we went to see the movie Selma when it came out, and we were driving home from the movie theater, and I realized, so my kids are 10 and 12 now, so this was like, they were like 9 and 11 or something last year when it came out. And I realized when we were talking about it on the drive home, you know, they were so outraged. They were outraged at racism and all the ways that I have been outraged my whole life. And a lot of the nice white liberal people I know are outraged about racism. And what I realized is that they thought that it was historical. You know, to them, it's Martin Luther King is their hero. And he's this person who went in and fought this great battle that we've now resolved as a nation, as a people. And what, of course, is made invisible when we only talk about racism in those terms is white privilege. It's interesting. I love that we're closing on this question because I do think that so much of what we talk about on Dear Sugar Radio, and I wrote about it in the column, and Steve wrote about it in the column, is you know, th like this idea of that in order to have a really emotionally evolved life, you have to risk, you have to take risks. A lot of the advice we gave over the course of these two episodes, it's about like, okay, you have to risk you know, telling your partner that you cheated, or you risk telling your parents that you won't accept this treatment anymore. You know, those are scary, uncomfortable things that we would rather avoid. But what we find is when we don't avoid them, it leads to better things in our life. And I think that as a culture, this is the same. And I've, again, returning to this idea of thinking about my own white privilege, you know, it's uncomfortable because the narrative I've told myself my whole life is the narrative that many, I'm sure many of the other white people in the room have told yourselves, well, I'm not a racist. But then to say, well, let's turn that upside down. Let's get uncomfortable and see, well, how, how, are, how has my privilege manifested itself in the world in ways that, that ultimately end up being racist. And, and I think it's okay to be uncomfortable, to be embarrassed, to be confronted, and also to breathe through it together. And most of us, I think, we want to avoid those conversations. And what I'm going to say is the only way that change will come is if we are willing to have those difficult moments. Yeah. And 
with your kids at a certain point. Kids understand evil, they understand jealousy and darkness. Just watch their imaginative play. It's not like all the fairies got together and had a great time. It's like, no, it's, it's quite dark. They get it, they understand more than we wanna, it's, it's our need to protect ourselves really that imputes all this sort of innocence to children. They understand that. When my kids ask about things, and I heard Cheryl doing this earlier today, you have to try to honestly tell them, here's what I think is going on in this situation. The world is an imperfect and sometimes broken place, and they have to make their way through that world. Yeah, we all do. So, we're gonna go out with a little bit of music. That's right. So, who's our music from? Wonderly. You should know them as Jim Brunberg and... And Ben. <laughs> you guys are really good at this. Yeah. <laughs> you guys didn't give us the damn notes. Okay, wait, let's back up. We're going to do that over. We're going to do that Jim, over. See, Jim, at the outset, he said we're going like, to have to, we're going to fuck up, and then we're going to have to go record things over and over. Well, and we're never going to fuck up. We're not going to fuck up. The only part we fucked up is the part where we introduced him. Okay, so Ben, what is your name? Landsberg. We're going to hear from Wonderly. Some of you who listen to Dear Sugar Radio will recognize their beautiful music that you hear on our show. Ben, Ben, Ben. Landsberg. Hey, nice. His parents are here, uh, Cheryl. I don't know if you know that. I don't know why. Ben, ben, right up okay. here in front. I guess it with a straight mouth, which sounds weird. Okay, Ben, Ben Landsberg and Jim. Ah, oh, come on. Oh, man. It's okay. Jim Brunberg. Wonderly. How about that? Wonderly. <laughs> Thanks. Jane, I heard you back in town.
Wow, that was fantastic, guys. Thank you, Ben and Jim. We love you wonderfully. And, uh, and we love this audience, too. Thank you guys so much for coming out. Yeah, you guys... I miss you already. We should tell you that Dear Sugar Radio is produced by WBUR in Boston. We are produced and edited by the wonderful, amazing Lisa Tobin. We're recording here at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. Yeah! I want to say thank you to the whole team here, which includes Brian Sturgis, Ray Mullen, and Jim Brunberg. And Jim, as you know, is also one half of Wonderly. They've been our house band here tonight, and they're behind all the music that you hear on our podcast. And of course, a big thank you to our guests, Sarah Heppala and Lydia Yuknovich. They are rock stars. Total punk rock lot rock stars. That's right. And to our other musicians, Angela Freeman and Kat Hawk. And thank you guys, especially for being here and making this whole thing happen. Thanks so much. Thank you.